Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day and welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law. And I am joined, as always, by my august and wonderful co-host, Stephen Wagner. Stephen Wagner, good day to you today. What an intro. I like that, Mitch. Thank you. Good day to you. <laughs> and... As, as we remind folks, I didn't really say it in, in the introduction, but I like to remind folks from time to time that you are not just an attorney who plays one on the radio. You are an active and practicing prosecutor. And, and I know you can't tell us anything about the details, but you just came out of a huge trial, didn't you? I did. I did. I just finished a trial that uh, lasted, I think, 18 court days, but seemed a lot longer because we were dark during the week of Thanksgiving. So, yes, wow. indeed. Well, 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 good work on that. And I just, I just, sometimes I like to remind everybody that, yes, we have our opinions, but it's, it's based on practice and many years of practice. And, and you've been an active prosecutor in, in the district attorney's office in a number of counties for, gee, how many years now, Stephen? Well, probably a combined uh, 10 years of experience prosecuting and then several years in the civil arena also. Yeah, that's great. Well, well we, have, we have a topic that, that relates to uh, conduct in a way, and we were going to talk about uh, alcohol and the holiday season, right, Mitch? Yes, there's a couple things I want to talk about today, and I, I think that's a perfect one to lead off on, because one of the things I happen to know is that in at least one of your iterations with the California District Attorneys Association, uh, you you had a, what most people don't realize was a very specified job, but you helped prosecute homicide cases related to uh, vehicular cases where people were killed by vehicles. And I remember when we've done a special on this before that a tragic number of those involve drugs and alcohol. So I thought it would be a great opportunity, and I agree with you, that we kind of give, I don't want to be a Scrooge for the holiday season, but this would be a great time to remind people with holiday parties and other festivities going on that drinking and drugs and driving do not mix. It's very illegal, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely, Mitch. You know, to the extent that we can weave in public service announcements like discussions on our program, I think it's quite apt to raise this issue around the holiday season and as most of our listeners know, there is always a spike in impaired driving cases and tragically cases involving death or serious injury connected to driving under the influence. So uh, there is a component to this that we've discussed before, and that relates to some of the tort liability connected to these kind of cases. And, you know, we talked about social hosts before, I think, in one of our programs before, or the liability of, let's say, a nightclub owner or a restaurant owner. And uh, California's law connected to dram shop law, which is uh, a law that could potentially impose liability on someone who serves uh, somebody alcohol. And so it's served and overserved. So let's just talk a little about that. So let's let's say let's let's put the setting for the moment in a public place. So there's a uh, let's say there's a 
a work event sponsored at a local establishment that serves alcohol, better known as a bar. And it's yeah. an open bar. Uh, the drinks are flowing, wine and beverages, adult beverages. So where does the dram shop? That's an interesting kind of archaic a term of a dram shop law, but what does that say, and where's the liability? Yeah, so so it's interesting because uh, the laws vary from state to state, obviously. Uh, California significantly limits the dram shop law liability, and dram shop comes from an original set of rules that actually did impose liability on someone who serves alcohol to a person who then goes on to commit a tort or very likely or very often a crime because there's overlap there. But California is uh, a, a jurisdiction or a state that limits dram shop liability. So a vendor who provides alcohol in California to a person under 21, uh, or I'm sorry, 21 or older cannot be held liable for damages if the person then injured someone. So uh, the exception in California is if someone underage is served, there's a business and professions code in California that does impose liability. And then originally this related to vendors, but it crept into social hosts also, which is the topic we wanted to hit a bit also. Right. So in the states where and we were broadcast nationally, so in the states that have a more uh, expansive definition of dram shop, if I understand it correctly, what it says is that is if if someone is served at, primarily in a commercial establishment, and, and isn't there in the traditional dram shop law a requirement that there needs to be some knowledge. So let's say someone is what they uh, would normally argue, you know, obviously drunk, or that you are the bartender and you know you've served them their fifth or sixth cocktail, and then they appear to leave on the way to go drive. That there's some connection of the dots that say you have some liability uh, for letting them go do that, right? Is that the, the theory of the law? Yeah, that's right. So, and then, uh, I mean, if you went back to historically to look at the term dram, that was actually a measured unit of alcohol. Right. So the idea was to just say that it's that you can't just keep as a commercial establishment selling, 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 selling to an individual and have no liability and say, well, I had no idea that someone who clearly was barely able to sit on the bar stool or maybe not able to sit on the bar stool then picked up their keys off the counter and walked out the door and say oh we had no idea something bad might happen there yeah no that's right you know Uh, vendors uh restaurants nightclubs and the like are really quite vigilant on that issue but California uh, does not impose liability pursuant to a dram shop law theory on the vendor, uh, whereas many states do. So the dram shop law does not apply with the same force in California as it does in others, other jurisdictions. One of the most fascinating things I found when we talked about this before, and this was dealing with some of the cases you've specifically dealt with, is is the idea of what happens when you get get in a vehicle behind the wheel, whether you're impaired by alcohol or drugs, and that if you know that you are impaired, that there's an element of intentionality that actually could turn that vehicle into a weapon. And that's, I fa- talk a little more about that again, because I think it's something that we just, you know, we don't realize you're wrapping yourself or, or wrapping around you uh, several tons of metal at great speed, and it comes with an obligation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in California, Mitch, a vehicle doesn't meet the definition necessarily categorically 
as a deadly weapon, but your point's well taken. In the hands of someone that is impaired or, or unable to safely operate the vehicle, it does, in fact, become a weapon. So uh, your reference to other drugs, too, is interesting because the laws are such now that it's not just alcohol that is codified. Any kind of substance that can cause impairment to the extent that it impacts the ability to safely operate a vehicle would qualify. So we, we can continue it after the break. I see we're coming up on a break. Yeah, after the break, let's let's talk a little more of that because really our warning is, you know, I know this is the classic don't drink and drive, don't drug and drive, but but this is a time of year where these kind of mistakes that otherwise, you know, straight thinking, cautious, conservative acting people could make a a tragic mistake and part of our goal of this show is to alert them to the legal liabilities and bring it a little closer to the forefront. So you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking right now with my co-host Stephen Wagner about drinking and driving and drugging and driving in the holidays. We'll come back to that topic after this short break. Don't go away. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about a number of topics and moving kind of in and out of topics. And we started actually by talking about impaired driving, and we did it within the context of, uh, I guess, sort of a PSA of sorts, right, Mitch? We were talking about holiday parties and and the need to be vigilant and safe when you uh, go to holiday parties. That's right, because I think it's it's just that 
that just fraction of a second of bad judgment could be such a tragic thing, not only for a, a, the possibility of a criminal record, if, if you're pulled over and found guilty of uh, driving while impaired, uh, it's, you could lose your ability, to, not ability, your legal authorization to drive, you could lose your license, you could spend a night in jail. I mean, it's not the way you want to start off the new year or end off this year. And, and let me bring one more thing up, Stephen, that I think people forget. And we've seen celebrities argue that when they get caught in an embarrassing situation and they say, well, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't drinking. I'm just under prescription medication. Now, that is not a valid legal excuse, is it? No, no, it's not, Mitch. And uh, the, the substance that causes intoxication uh, can really uh, come from a number of different categories, including prescription drugs, street drugs, a combination of those, and alcohol. So the rules are such uh, in all jurisdictions that uh, really the, a broad category of intoxicants can still qualify and still meet the definition of a substance that causes you uh, the inability to safely operate a vehicle. And the other thing I'd end with, Mitch, on this topic is, and this is a little bit of myth busting, um, we have two significant uh, code sections in California uh, that relate to impaired driving. Um, one of them is 23152A of our vehicle code, and that is driving under the influence. We also have vehicle code section 23152B, which is driving under the influence with a .08 or greater. If you recall opening the letter from DMV that you get each year to renew your license, there is a flyer included in there that shares with you a, uh, a table of sorts that shows you uh, how alcohol uh, can impact your ability to safely operate a vehicle. And it is that A count that I wanted to share a little bit because uh, if you are driving under the influence to the extent that you can't safely operate the vehicle, you can still be cited and ultimately convicted. In other words, you do not need to meet a threshold blood alcohol content level uh, so long as there's still evidence that you can't safely operate a vehicle. So the message out there if you will, is a little bit of intoxicants goes a long way. All right. Well, go a long way. Thank, thank you for that warning. And let's hope everybody takes it to heart. Uh, what I'd like to do, is, if we could, Stephen, let's shift for just a moment to you know, what we like to do periodically is headline news related to the law. And, and I just can't resist bringing up two what are somewhat extraordinary headlines that came out this past week. Unfortunately, both of them, again, come out of the, inside the bubble in Washington, D.C., but both of them raise questions of legal definitions. And as, as you and I have said, we, we do our best not to base our discussion on the politics of a situation, but the intersection of the law with those politics. And so it doesn't really matter who's saying it. The question is, how do we define it? And I want to talk about two clauses that came out in the headlines. One was the term obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. And then just, just yesterday, the question of attorney-client privilege. And so there was a somewhat extraordinary statement by one of the president's lawyers who said that the president cannot be uh, charged, not just guilty, but not, cannot be charged with obstruction of justice because they're the president. Okay. okay. All right. Got so it. We might just pull those, that statement apart a little bit. Okay. And, and question the, the various pieces. All right. So, first of all, definition of obstruction of justice. Now that has, That's not limited to Washington or the president. In fact, most commonly we see that in reference to behavior of police officers, don't we? Uh, we could. Um, let, why don't you start with a definition? Okay. So the obstruction of justice is someone in, generally speaking, someone in a position of public authority 
who uses that authority to then deter or deflect the other official actions of another individual. Now, that's one. The second is you don't have to be a public person, but for example, there was someone that was found guilty of obstruction of justice because there was an FBI investigation. They took cartons of documents that they knew were subject to the FBI's investigation, removed them from their office, and went and hid them, and then testified that they had no idea where those documents were. Okay? So... You talked about, you know, there's intentionality, but the, the reality was trying to take a legal investigation, in this case, whether it was the FBI or police investigation, and then taking an intentional act to obstruct, just like it says, a legal and lawful investigation. Okay, I, I want to give, give you the honors to do that definition because it's uh, there's some terms in there that I think we're going to probably... Uh, turn into points of contention in many ways as we work through this. But I think the essence is that it's got hallmarks of abuse of power. Yes. Um, interfering, intermeddling is another issue that's often uh, a focal point. Uh, and usually it involves thwarting or stopping uh, an investigation or some kind of evidence of interference often. So, and obviously I think what we're going to get to is the issue of uh, bias and and there's obvious political intrigue here i think there's enough to spread around we don't have to pick necessarily on uh republicans as we take this on we could probably uh shift a little of this topic around to democratic uh (laughs) stakeholders also that's right no question about it this is not a this uh, although it's playing out in the political environment what i want to talk about is the legal definition so people aren't confused about what's being talked about so, so in this case, so what the, the question would be, the president's lawyer said, because he is the president and the, the head, the head of the entire federal legal machinery, you know, he, the, the Department of Justice works for him, the Attorney General works for him. Therefore, by definition, and this is going to sound vaguely familiar to people who lived through Nixon and the Watergate era, if the president does it, it can't be illegal. Yeah, so the statement just sounds like it's a categorical bar, or it the rule doesn't apply to me is the spirit of that, uh, that volley, right, Mitch? It doesn't matter what I did or who I did it to. By definition, the fact that it's me bars this claim from being made okay and now we're going to dig in and challenge that right yes all right go <laughs> I'll let you, well, there let very, no no go ahead there are very few there are very few people who believe that there's much substance to that statement and here's why and you're you pointed out absolutely correctly both pre- former presidents nixon and former president clinton both a republican and a democrat had claims of obstruction of justice brought against them. So again, not a political issue in those cases, but in both cases they were sitting presidents in which uh, claims or charges of obstruction of justice were made. So the idea that the concept of there being obstruction of justice and not being within the the purview of the of evaluating a president's behavior is a little to me in the ludicrous side it, it, and a bit puffery yeah so, okay so it's it's dubious because you can point to history to see that that it's happened before that's exactly right and and you have the you know in the case of of clinton uh, you know mitch mcconnell and jeff sessions led the charge against clinton on the charge of obstruction of justice okay that he he hid information, lied about it, uh, and tried to use his influence to keep people from testifying. And that was part of the impeachment charges against Bill Clinton. Going back the further step with Nixon, the idea was that he didn't know about the Watergate break-in in, in theory, 
But after learn uh, before the fact, I'm sorry, I should make clear, before the fact, but it was then after the fact when the, the, when the famous uh, tapes came out that it was discussed about in the office and he were on the tapes talking about the event and that then he used the powers of the president to actually direct that money be paid to try to keep people from testifying. Right. Um, and then, as Pope historians will remember, uh, Nixon resigned before those charges became resolved. But in neither case was there the legal argument made by anybody other than Richard Nixon, who also made the claim that when the president does it, it means it's not illegal. That's his famous statement. The president does it, it means it's not illegal. And that turned out to not end up being the prevailing thought of that area of the law. Right. That's true. So that's my side. That's my side of it is that I just think it's, it it is, it, it is always disappointing to me. I know you can get a zealous advocate for an attorney, but for an attorney to try to make a declarative statement about something that appears to be relatively resolved in the law as a distractor, I just don't find that particularly effective. Yeah, so yeah. You, start, you started with the statement and then uh, challenged the efficacy of the statement. I, I agree with you. It's, uh, it's a bold statement to be making that, a categorical claim like that um, when there is uh, proof that there's been obstruction charges levied in the past. But let, let's look at the merits. What do we got in this in this scenario, Mitch, what are we talking about that, that could rise to the level of obstruction? Well, the, the irony of this, this appears to have all been set off by the president's attorney, who now claims that when the president tweeted that he fired, uh, he fired General Flynn, his then national security advisor, for two reasons. One, because he, the one in the, that's important in this one, is because he lied about his statements under oath to the FBI. That was the key, the key one. And so the, that's not news, but it appeared to be in the tweet from the president that the president then knew about the lie to the FBI, which is, the, which is illegal. And then, here's the best part, fired James Comey, who was investigating this claim, so here's the obstruction part, to stop the claim from being made, or to stop and impinge the investigation. Okay. There's two parts of it. So the- ahead of time, he used his official authority to then fire the person who's in charge of the investigation in order to obstruct the investigation. There's okay. the, there's the so, pieces. So, so there's the... There's the framed issue, the, the knowledge imputed to the president and then the action taken to it potentially thwarting or interfering with an investigation, right? an ongoing investigation. Before, before the break, I just have to get this out, Mitch. Can you imagine if tweeting were possible back in the Clinton era? <laughs> Or you are going to have us think era. about that all the way through the break. Or, <laughs> oh, or in the or in the Nixon era, uh, you know, how prolific would the tweets have been? I can't, I can't even really imagine. Hurts, hurts my head. Think, when we come back, I'm watching the clock here. We're going out on a break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're going out on a very short break. When we come back, we'll continue our robust discussion about a number of topics. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. 
The San Luis Obispo College of Laws campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about obstruction of justice. And Mitch, we got there because we were tracking headlines, correct? They were all coming out of the beltway again. That's exactly right. And and it's not just this one instance where we were talking about whether the president obstructed justice in firing James Comey over the Flynn investigation, although that's the context of it. But it's still in current discussion of can the president then fire Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor, if he doesn't like the way that investigation's going as well? And so you've said to us before that an otherwise legal act, authorized legal act, can in some cases become an illegal act based on intent. And you remind us always that there's elements of the law called actus reus and What's the other one? Oh, mens rea. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The mental, mental state and act. That's good. Wow, you take me back into the classroom. Right. So, yeah, so the so all statutes have a component or all criminal statutes have a component wherein there is a requirement that the prosecuting agency or whoever is pro- or pursuing some kind of an action must be able to prove mental state in some way. And that goes to the issue of intent, level of intent, specific intent versus general intent to commit a certain act. And then there's the physical component, which is that actus reus. And I think what you were referencing there, Mitch, is really the motive behind some kind of a firing. I mean, when you reference uh, Mueller, or the, the potential firing of Mueller, that, how is it, what's the motivation behind it is where the action would center yeah, and that's so. From as lawyers, you know, there's we've we've frequently distinguished between the political issue involved and the legal issue, and so the the legal issue is the president absolutely had the right to fire James Comey. The president absolutely has the right to fire Robert Mueller. Those are in the chain of command of the Justice Department in the executive branch of the government. So we're not questioning the authority to do it. But this is a perfect example of parsing out the law to say, however, if the intent was 
to obstruct justice and other law an otherwise lawful activity of the director of the FBI or a special prosecutor, then it's entirely possible that criminal intent comes into the conversation. Yeah, that, no, that's well stated, Mitch. And I think the, the point there is that the act of terminating someone actually could be evidence uh, or could demonstrate obstruction. I mean, that act itself is aimed at obstructing would be the spirit of the potential argument there. That's right. So as we, as in many of these conversations, this one's not going away. We're going to see this in the headlines, both on the question of the president and his relationship with Michael Flynn and the president in his relationship with James Comey and the president in his relationship with Robert Mueller. Hmm. Might be a pattern, but we could let it leave it at that. <laughs> I do want to talk about one other one, though, because this one was a head scratcher for me. Maybe you can help me through this. Uh, yesterday in the news, we had Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump Jr. was testifying in front of a Senate committee, and he was asked about a meeting, but this is in the Russia investigation. He was asked about a meeting that he now, it's clear that he attended. Uh, it went, was one of those meetings that went from he attended with one person, then two people, and it sounds like there may have been 10 or 11 people in the room. And one of the individuals was... Were, was a Russian lawyer and some other Russian delegates, and they the question is whether they talked about things related to the campaign. We can set aside that for a moment. I don't really care what they talked about, but they asked him during the hearing about when the meeting was over, did you report back to the president? In this case it happens to be his father, but the familial relationship is not a factor here. Did you, as a special advisor to the president, which was his role at the time, report back to the president on what went on at that meeting? And his answer was, I am asserting attorney-client privilege. And I have to say... Were you aghast? Well, I was at least scratching my head a little, going, well, wait a minute. Donald Trump Jr. is not an attorney, okay? Uh, Donald Trump, Donald Trump Sr. is not an attorney. So you have two non-attorneys. The question's about two non-attorneys. Where's the attorney in the attorney-client privilege here? And his answer was, well, there was an attorney in the room. Therefore, I'm exerting the attorney-client privilege, and I'm not going to answer that question. Okay, now, based on the tone and your voice inflection, Mitch... I, it sounds to me like you're setting the table for me so I can somehow justify that claim and I'll I'll take it on, all right? I'll try I'll do my I'll do my objective best. Okay. All right. <laughs> because uh, it would make a good law school fact pattern actually. So attorney client privilege, just to briefly go over some of the important features of that. Um, first of all, there's gotta be a relationship, an attorney client relationship, right? Right. And that's and, actually defined. Yeah, it is. And what I can share for our listeners, though, is an interesting point, and that is that it doesn't necessarily require that there be a formal relationship. So, for instance, you don't need to have a retention agreement. Uh, The attorney-client privilege starts as early as when the potential client goes to visit an attorney. Or calls them on the phone. Sure. Absolutely. And, And that needs to be communicated. So, in other words, the onus would be and, and usually it is done, uh, the attorney or the attorney's representative, by the way, Mitch, because uh, it extends out to paralegals and assistants too, uh, needs to let that potential client know that the discussion is privileged. And obviously that's done so as to foster candor during the initial discussion. So you need a relationship for one thing. Uh, the next thing is... Who- relationship with... An attorney, right? So there has to be a relationship, and the relationship with an attorney, then go on. What, what else needs there to be? Sure. So then, so then you, you need to have a setting in which there was an expectation of privilege also, which I think is going right into the wheelhouse of, of what you had raised in this scenario. Uh, is it a setting in which uh, it was reasonable to think that the privilege was in, in place? So... The other issue there is who invokes the privilege, who's the holder, who can assert it. So in an attorney-client privilege scenario, 
both parties hold the privilege. In other words, attorney holds it, so does client, and either can assert it so long as it's valid. So it always goes back, or usually the action centers on the setting. And what I'll add, here's a good wrinkle, is third-party eavesdroppers. Mm-hmm. So, And that goes to an issue that we've talked about before in a couple of different settings, but that's the expectation component, the expectation of privacy. So, for instance, let's say hypothetically you're my attorney, and we start to uh, chat about very sensitive issues connected to a particular uh, event. But we do it in a forum where other people can hear. Let's say Acme Coffee, coffee Shop. <laughs> Gee, that what? sounds like a show we've already done, but continue yeah, on. <laughs> yeah. so, so what I'm setting up there is that if there are other people, they go by the name of eavesdroppers, okay, um, bystanders that overhear it. If I make a statement in an open forum like that, it's unreasonable for me to claim that I think I had the expectation of privacy. So we, you know, we've done this, and I think we did it in a Fourth Amendment context. But there's overlap here. You know, when we were talking about search and seizure issues, but you need to be careful where you make statements. So if we have a, a situation here where you have an individual who's at a meeting, there's no appearance that there was someone that was their attorney or someone they thought was their attorney, or who they'd have any conversation with about being their attorney. And that's a key part you've made in a meeting that has a dozen people in the room, unrelated, foreign visitors, others. Is there a scenario there that you think there, there are some privileges that might be exerted, but is there a scenario there that you would think the word attorney client, the words attorney client privilege could be used? No, I, I challenge the validity of that claim based on the events. Uh, and I think there's two problems. One is the relationship and the other is the number of parties in that room or setting and whether that's, that's reasonable in that scenario. Yeah. So I just had, I couldn't resist. It's, it's not a major deal. It's not earth shattering. I'm much more concerned about the issues related with general Flynn and James Comey and Robert Mueller. But uh, but I just had to scratch my head on that one. of, And I didn't want the, our listeners to think that, well, you can just maybe think up a legal term and just throw it out there regardless of its application and go, oh, yeah, that'll work. No, no, I'm not going to answer that, Your Honor, because I, I have attorney-client privilege. Because uh, right there in the elevator uh, with somebody who I thought might be a lawyer because they had a nice suit was there. <laughs> yeah, well, well, Mitch, just again, to throw kind of a mini lifeline out uh, and, and maybe make one more comment connected to the relationship, one argument could be that I thought I had the relationship. And, and, and I know it sounds flimsy. However, if there is evidence to support that it was reasonable to believe that I was in the presence of counsel or an attorney that was actually retained or, or at least consulting me, there is some legs to that argument. And this is similar to what we talked about before. This is not a new concept. This has been litigated. This has been very carefully thought out. There's law review articles on it. And, and the general privileges that we talk about that are, are very serious. I mean, I'm kind of laughing a little at this one because of the juxtaposition of how it's used. But attorney-client is a fundamental, fundamental right that makes the attorney-client system work, that you can say anything to your attorney and be protected uh, with the very, very few exceptions, the biggest one being that you cannot walk in and tell your attorney that you are about to go out and, and conduct a crime. Then the attorney actually does have to report that. But with very few other exceptions that's protected. A doctor-patient is protected. Priest-penitent is protected. And there's some things we've seen of the spousal privilege under testimony where you cannot force one spouse to testify against another. And those are really foundational principles of, of the justice system. I just hate to see it thrown around this way by what one might argue were otherwise intelligent people. 
Yeah, I, no, I agree. It's it's wrong to see it diluted this way or abused. I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, the privileges are clearly in place in all those settings, Mitch, whether it's attorney-client or doctor-patient. The spirit behind those privileges is absolutely to foster candor and and the rendition of services in a, in a good, safe manner. Absolutely. So we have just a little over a minute left, but I want to wrap up here with a reminder, another cautionary reminder. We have another tragic set of fires going on in Southern California, the L.A. area, the Ventura area. area. And what I'd like to just wrap up quickly is, I, I, first of all, our heart and hopes go out to all of those folks who are affected by that. But this is a reminder to all of us that you can never predict when you might have to flee your home because of a natural disaster and you ought to have a packet of the legal documents you need, things such as your vital records, your insurance policies, your property records, key medical information, state documents, financial records. It's not a big packet. You need to have that so that when you're heading out the door with the 30 seconds of notice, you can then rebuild your life around having those documents in hand. Through that, through that, I did that. So that's hopefully, hopefully, some of those folks did that. But for the rest of us that aren't being faced with that, uh, please, please take this opportunity to put together one of those safety packages. Even copies, even though you might lose the originals, copies can help you recontact the companies, the insurance companies your birth certificates, your driver's licenses, your passports, all of those things. It's so easy to make. Even a digital copy. Take a picture of it, put it in the cloud so you can recover that. So on that note, we're going to remind you again that you can hear an archive of today's show at voiceamerica.com business. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law, my partner Steve Wagner, and as we suggest to you every week, If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepherd Mullen attorney and staff member has issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. 
we regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepherd Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management. Get the latest insights on disruptive technologies and trends that are impacting the digital economy. Listen to the SAP Digitalist Flash Briefings and take your business to the next level. Just add the SAP Digitalist Flash Briefing as a skill to your Amazon Echo, Echo Dot, or Echo View. The SAP Digitalist Flash Briefings are also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, VoiceAmerica.com, Overcast, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Be in the know with the SAP. SAP Digitalist Flash Briefings. As a small business owner, there's one word that you absolutely dread. Payroll. For small businesses, it's a big burden. You may think you're saving time and money doing it yourself. But come on, are you? Timesheets, processing checks, calculating taxes, a total waste of your time. Paychecks simplifies payroll processing, saving you time and money. Submit your payroll online, fax it in, or call your dedicated Paychecks payroll specialist. And you're done. Learn more at TryPaychecks.com. Come on, do the math. The IRS dishes out 8 million penalties a year. Make one mistake and you're on the hook. On average, you're losing nearly one business day every month doing payroll. That's time and money you'll never get back. Unless you get paychecks. More than half a million small businesses already do. Call 877-648-5421. Trade payroll pressure for peace of mind. Call now. 877-648-5421. That's 877-648-5421. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. Do you feel like you're losing control over your finances? If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services and take advantage of the Fresh Start program and new laws that may allow us to negotiate a settlement for the lowest amount possible. Our team of tax attorneys and enrolled agents can stop collections and get you protected so you can take control of your financial future. Tax Mediation Services is accredited by the Better Business Bureau. Call now for a free case review and a price protection guaranteed quote. Call Tax Mediation Services now at 800-760-0116. That's 800-760-0116. 800-760-0116. 